It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. In New York, I'm John Fassman. And in London, I'm Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. For years, despite Mexican cartels booming business and sending illegal drugs north, drug use rates in Mexico itself remain quite low. But with the rise of synthetic drugs, that's starting to change with grievous social consequences. And you can't carry a knife onto a flight or fireworks. You can't even carry more than 100 milliliters of liquid. So it seems pretty obvious that toting a gun on board is out of the question. Yet a surprising number of Americans try just that. But first... Kenya has a new president, William Ruto. Probably. The longtime leader Uhuru Kenyatta is stepping down, revealing a respect for term limits that's lamentably rare in Africa. Kenya has become a beacon of stability and prosperity compared with its neighbors. It's arguably Africa's third most important democracy, and its elections matter, and not just because a clean fight sends a good regional signal. The country's been ravaged by protests and violence after past polls. In 2007, claims of vote-rigging led to upheaval that lasted for two months. Ten years later, a similarly contested outcome resulted in the deaths of dozens of people. In both cases, the opposition candidate was Raila Odinga, a former prime minister who ran yet again this time. But this year's polls were the most transparent and technologically advanced yet. And though there is some disquiet, Mr. Ruto, ascending from deputy to president, had what might be seen as calming words. I want to tell them that they have nothing to fear. There is no room. There is nothing. There is no room for vengeance. There is no room for looking back. What seems clear is that Mr. Odinga will once again challenge the result. So the story isn't quite over yet. Yesterday afternoon, after six days of counting the vote, the chairman of the Electoral Commission declared that William Ruto, Kenya's deputy president, had won Kenya's election by a wafer-thin majority. Adrian Blomfield is our East Africa correspondent. He secured 50.5% of the vote, beating Raila Odinga into second place. Odinga secured 48.8% of the vote. So what is it that differentiated the candidates here? We have an election in which we've got two old-timers contesting against each other who have been on the political scene in Kenya for a long time. Mr. Ruto has very cleverly positioned himself as the voice of the 
disenfranchised, the marginalized, the poorest in society. He has cast himself as the anti-establishment candidate, despite the fact that he's very rich and he has been the deputy president for the last nine and a half years. He has succeeded in transcending ethnicity, one of the biggest features in electoral politics in Kenya. And we have seen people across tribes supporting Mr. Ruto. For the first time, we've seen class trump ethnicity in a Kenyan election. And what about Mr. Odinga? Ryler Odinga was the perennial anti-establishment voice, having contested four previous elections. The last three, he was beaten into second place. But this time, he won the endorsement of his former foe, the outgoing president, Uhuru Kenyatta. And so he has now become the establishment candidate. So it's one of the many ironies. The anti-establishment candidate has become the establishment candidate, the establishment candidate, the anti-establishment candidate. So you can forgive Kenyans for being slightly cynical about this process. And that's one of the reasons why we've seen turnout much lower than in the two previous elections. And it may be one of the reasons why we don't see so much violence this time. And what about the mechanics of the election itself? So uh, we had had a very transparent election in terms of the count until the very last moment. We were waiting for the results to come in. We'd been told that a declaration was imminent. The opposition, Mr. Odinga's aides, came out and said that the process had been compromised, that the servers had been hacked into of the Electoral Commission, that some of the staff were in cahoots in that and that they did not trust the process. Mr. Odinga did not turn up for the declaration. For an hour or so later, four of the electoral commissioners broke out, gave a separate press conference and said that they regarded the final phase of the count as opaque. The chairman of the electoral commission then tried to come out to make the announcement. He was physically pushed back by members of Mr. Odinga's team, and he eventually had to be escorted out back to the podium under police protection, where he declared that Mr. Ruto had won. And so where do you think things go from here? Well, we need to look at two things. What is going to be the reaction on the streets and what is going to be the potential legal challenge? So far, we have seen some limited protests in Odinga strongholds, but we have not seen the kind of violence that we have seen after disputed elections in the past, many of which Mr. Odinga has been at the forefront of. But essentially, the ground has now been laid for a legal challenge at the Supreme Court. Mr. Odinga now has seven days, and some of this, the splitting of the Electoral Commission, is likely to be at the core of this. Has it affected the integrity of the vote? So we're going to hear that in the next few days, but it is almost certain that we will see a challenge in the Supreme Court. And assuming this stands, Mr. Ruto does become president, what kind of Kenya is he inheriting? Well, he has lots of challenges ahead. Under his predecessor, Uhuru Kenyatta, Kenya's economy, already the largest in the region, did grow. But the development model that was pursued led to a quintupling of public debt to fund large infrastructure projects mainly built by China. So Kenya now faces a potential debt crisis. The IMF has warned that Kenya is in debt distress. There is little headroom for borrowing more. And at the same time, because he has appealed to the poorest in society, those expectations are going to be very high. And yet the poorest are those who are suffering most from a cost of living crisis. 
we could see inflation in the last quarter hitting the low double digits. A fuel and food subsidy that has been put in place before the election is likely to be lifted. So we could see this reversal. People who had expected to see their quality of life improving at the bottom of society could suddenly find that they're going to be living through even tougher conditions. And who will they blame for that? Well, Mr. Ruto, clearly, which leads to the question, is he the right man for the job, do you think? Can he navigate these challenges? On the plus side, William Ruto is a very, very talented, instinctive politician. He's hardworking. He's energetic. He's got an incredible command of detail. But he also has a very, very troubling backstory. He came into politics as essentially a bruiser for the former dictator, Daniel Arat Moy. After the 2007 election, he was charged by the International Criminal Court with instigating ethnic violence that left 1,300 people dead. That case was only dropped after prosecution witnesses either recanted or disappeared. He's always denied the charges, and he's also faced numerous corruption allegations, which he also denies. So, In his backstory, there are those strongman tendencies that make him sound a bit like Jared Bolsonaro or Narendra Modi or other classic strongmen of that ilk. And you couple that with the populist message of the campaign. So you have got people who are worried. So the Kenyan people have taken a massive gamble in this election, essentially. We could see potentially a leader who is able to do great things for the country, but we could also see an authoritarian leader in the making who takes this country down a very different path. Thanks very much for joining us, Adrian. Thank you so much, Jason. Hi, this is Matt. And Sean. From Two Black Guys. With good credit. If you own or operate a business whether it's a local operation or a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America could be your smartest move. By teaming with Bank of America, you'll enjoy exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Position your business to capitalize on opportunity in a moment's notice. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Mexico is home to some of the world's most powerful drug cartels. Every year, millions of dollars worth of drugs, including heroin, cocaine, and marijuana, enter America from Mexico. Synthetic drugs like crystal meth are an increasingly important part of that business. But those lab-made drugs, once exclusively destined for higher-paying customers abroad, are now flooding the local market. And drug addiction, once an exported problem, is becoming a domestic one, too. Mexico is home to hundreds of gangs who have long shipped illegal drugs north. But use has been pretty low. Sarah Burke is the Economist's Mexico City bureau chief. Now that's changing. Domestic drug use has been rising and it's causing quite a lot of damage and also driving some people into the orbit of those drug gangs. 
I'm surprised, given how powerful the cartels are and how important drugs are to the criminal economy, that domestic drug use has been low. Yeah, it is surprising. I mean, I guess one of the key things is that sending drugs north, you get a better price for them. So that's been the main focus of drug gangs. But Mexico's most recent national survey, which is now pretty dated, it was in 2016, shows that 10% of people reported having tried an illegal substance in their lives, which was up from 7% in 2011. And the type of drug that people are using is changing. And that's another reason that domestic use is rising. So synthetic drugs such as crystal meth in particular have become more common within the last decade, past five, six years, let's say. So in 2021, for example, some recent data from a government network of treatment centres said that 36% of users of the centre sought help because of addiction to crystal meth. And that was up from 15% in 2016, so only five years earlier. So you're seeing more domestic drug use, a higher proportion of users using these cheaper, synthetic and more destructive substances. So that's what people are using with increasing frequency. What's driving it? What about the social factors behind it? So, I mean, one of the things is that there seems to have been a decision by the Sinaloa gang, which is the main producer of synthetic drugs, to try and sell locally. Some people say as well that the border has got tighter to the US, so some things don't cross and simply stay behind on the Mexican side. I mean, the other thing is that the low price of synthetic drugs means people are able to afford it in Mexico. So people I spoke to when I went to Ciudad Juarez, which is a city on the border, said a dose of meth costs just eight pesos, which is about 40 US cents. And that's less than buying a bag of crisps or a can of Coke. And it's very easy to get people hooked. It's another way of recruiting people to work for gangs as well. You know, you get them addicted to the drugs and then they are reliant on having a connection to these gangs. So one of the problems is that these synthetic drugs, as well as being cheap, is they're very potent and very addictive, and they have horrible impacts on the people who take them. So this rise in use, is it happening everywhere, across all states, across all age groups? It's a national thing, and it varies by state. So border cities have long been the worst affected by drugs, partly because there's a lot of gang activity there and partly because of some drugs not crossing the border. But the demographic trends are changing. So more women are taking drugs now, and there's also a shift towards people using them at a younger age. So during the pandemic, consumption of illegal drugs rose among 15 to 24-year-olds. So generally, people are starting to have contact with drugs when they're younger. And what sorts of social impacts are they having? I mean, it's really negative. When you talk to people, including heads of addiction agencies in both the states and nationally, they say it's having a terrible effect. So people are losing their lives, they're losing their families, they're losing their house, they're losing their jobs. For the state, you've got a lot of people who need treatment, who might not be able to access it. It causes horrible medical problems physically, but also mentally. So it's having a huge impact on the country. And what's being done about it? So at a high level, the US and Mexico have made preventing drug use a focus of bilateral efforts. There's much more of a focus on this now. Mexico is also looking at shifting away from criminalizing drug users to treating them as people with a health problem that need help. So there's some tangible evidence of that. There's a pilot project in Chihuahua, which is a northern state where Ciudad Juarez is located. And offenders who have only a small amount of drugs on them are sent to a special court where they're put into therapy rather than given a criminal conviction. And if they complete the therapy, they don't have a criminal record at the end of it. The federal government is looking at this and may roll it out nationally. There's also an effort to try and make sure that 
there are enough treatment centres and that they're of good quality. I mean, part of the problem is there just isn't enough capacity to deal with all the people who are getting addicted to drugs now. So you mentioned this pilot program in Ciudad Juarez. What about at the national level? Is enough being done there policy-wise? So at the national level, the focus is mainly from changing from a criminal view to a health view. And they're looking at that latter bit, the health side. So they're trying to regulate treatment centers and build more of them. I mean, one of the problems is that lots of them are provided by private people or companies who have very good intentions, but very little training or expertise in how to deal with people with addictions. There's also a a muddle going on about drug policy more generally. So the government is talking about legalizing cannabis. In fact, the courts have ruled they have to, but nothing's happened. And people are sort of worried about, you know, if you legalize cannabis, this is a gateway drug. It's shown in surveys that people regularly start on this and move. But at the same time, legalizing it will obviously help divert profits away from criminal gangs. So all of this shows that Mexico's government doesn't necessarily have a clear vision of what it's trying to do and how it's going to solve this problem of more people being addicted to drugs. All right, Sarah, thanks so much for your time today. Thanks, John. Take off your shoes, empty your pockets, pull out your laptop, throw out your liquids. It's a depressingly familiar ritual for air travelers around the world. But at American airports, there's one more personal item that's a growing problem for security agents. Hutfield Jackson, which is Atlanta's main airport, is America's largest airport, actually, by the number of passengers who travel through it. Daniel Knowles is our Midwest correspondent. It's perfectly nice airport, has some good restaurants and things, but it's also a very American experience kind of going through the airport because as well as all of the signs at the security checkpoints telling you to get rid of your liquids or to take your shoes off for security, there are these huge TV screens showing these like hologram images of guns and big signs saying, please do not take your gun through security. And the reason why is that Atlanta's airport holds the undesirable accolade of being the airport in America where the most Americans have tried to take their weapons through security. So this will no doubt strike listeners outside the United States as extraordinary. Why on earth would anyone try to bring a gun onto a plane? Well, I mean, in America, you can carry your guns on planes, but you have to take the bullets out of them, lock them in a kind of special gun case and check them as luggage. Last year, you know, the TSA, the Transportation Security Administration, they found 500 guns just at uh, Hartsfield-Jackson, which was the highest number ever. All over the country, they found more like 6,000 guns, which is twice as many as, as were found in 2014. Even in, in 2020, when the number of people flying was significantly less than half what it was in normal times, the number of guns that the TSA found was only a quarter less than the previous year, which makes you wonder if they were just finding more because the security agents have more time to check people a bit more closely and perhaps some guns are actually getting onto aeroplanes. And you know, just for a point of comparison, I called the press office at London's Heathrow Airport, which is one of the, the highest numbers of passengers of any airport worldwide, and asked them what would happen if they found a gun at security. And uh, 
They weren't exactly sure what to tell me because it's apparently never happened, or at least not that they know of, because guns are so much rarer in the UK. Nobody has been stupid enough to try and bring one onto a plane. Are guns the only weapon that people have been caught with? Well, in fact, there are other other things that TSA agents have found while they're going through people's luggage. In 2019, at uh, BWI Airport in Baltimore, they found somebody who'd been trying to bring a, a rocket launcher from Kuwait back to his home in Texas. I don't think the rocket was actually in it, but it was very much a rocket launcher. They found things like model weapons, people trying to carry sickles, um, Batman boomerangs, uh, batarangs, uh, meat slicing machines, all sorts of things. But really, guns are the things that they find a really tremendous number of. And the crazy thing is, you know, and I talked to the TSA about this and they say, well, you know, mo in most cases what happens, it's not that somebody's trying to smuggle a gun onto a plane deliberately. It's that people, especially in some of the more kind of gun-friendly states in America, carry their guns like other people carry their keys and, and their wallet. And so whenever they leave the house, they're like, well, you know, keys, wallet, phone, handgun. And they just forget to sort of put it away until suddenly it's found in security, which is why, in fact, the most guns are found in states like Georgia and Texas, where carrying a gun is a lot easier. Whereas Chicago, where I live, carrying a gun requires you to have a permit and everything. The airport, even though it's a very large airport in Chicago, they don't stop many guns here. And what usually happens to people who are caught carrying a gun on them or in their hand luggage? Well, this is an interesting point because the TSA can stop you and they can fine you, but that's the kind of extent of what the TSA can do. They're, they're not a police agency. They can't charge you with anything. You get handed over to local police and then they look at whether you've broken any laws. If you are not legally allowed to own a gun, then you could be charged with a crime. And in lots of American states, while trying to carry a gun into an airport is a crime in itself. But in Georgia, you know, where Atlanta is, earlier this year, the governor signed... Uh, a new law, what gun rights activists call constitutional carry. What it actually means is, is permitless carry. So basically in Georgia now, you can carry your gun wherever you want, essentially. So now if you're caught trying to carry your gun into Atlanta airport through security, you know, while you might get a, a big old fine from the TSA, that's basically it. You'll then be told, you know, to take your gun back to your car or to check its luggage. And this has caused a lot of angst in Atlanta, at least, because the city councils are rather concerned and the police that people can now try to carry guns onto planes with almost zero consequences. But I think it's not only Atlanta that people need to worry about this. It's perhaps only a matter of time before somebody gets a gun onto a plane and does something bad with it. All right, Daniel, thanks so much for stopping by today. Uh, John, always a pleasure. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can get in touch at podcasts at economist.com. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. This is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. 
What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024.